The Israeli government is ordering an evacuation of civilians in the southern Gaza city of Rafah as Israeli forces gear up for a ground assault on Hamas there. Aid agencies, though, warned that there are more than a million Palestinians who've taken refuge there and could be in the line of fire. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, earlier this week, a potentially historic change in U.S. immigration policy died in a divided Congress. Where does that leave immigration reform? And of all age groups, young Americans are especially vocal about the subject of mental health, including as a political issue. When I hear any elected official bring it up, it makes me think more highly of them because I know that they're aware that this matters. How politicians are incorporating mental health into their platforms. These stories and Wall Street numbers are ahead. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More blistering reaction today from the White House to Special Counsel Robert Hur's damning assessment of President Biden's mental acuity. Her characterized the 81-year-old president as an elderly man with a poor memory. Today, Vice President Kamala Harris issued her own assessment of Robert Hur's work. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated. Gratuitous. But the special counsel's investigation determined that no criminal charges against Biden were warranted for his mishandling of classified documents. With the release of the report, the case is effectively closed. Former President Donald Trump, who is 77, is facing a raft of felony charges related to his mishandling of classified documents. Immigration policy analysts are examining the failed $118 billion bill that would have overhauled key immigration policies They say lawmakers' efforts continue to buckle under the weight of the politics surrounding immigration. Texas Public Radio's Maria Navarro has details. The measure could have been one of the most significant legislative immigration reforms in recent decades. An analysis by the Migration Policy Institute finds that despite more than 500 immigration-related executive actions taken by the Biden administration, Congress must act. Musa Farchisti is a policy analyst with the Institute. People shout from top of their rooftops that we want to control immigration. But when it actually comes down to providing the policies and the resources and the staffing to do it, they collapse. Chishti says lawmakers often use the issue for political gain, especially during an election year. I'm Marian Navarro in San Antonio. Last week, big tech company Apple publicly launched a wearable mixed reality headset. It's called the Vision Pro. But some viral videos online of consumers driving while wearing them have prompted road safety concerns. NPR's Deba Motasham has more. Videos have already cropped up online showing people wearing the $3,500 Apple Vision Pro headset while driving their Tesla, hands off the wheel. Even if staged, such videos have forced the U.S. Department of Transportation to weigh in, warning people to always be fully engaged while driving. Because the Vision Pro works by blocking out all light, the user has to rely completely on headset cameras to see the external world. Experts say the device poses dangers not only because it can cause distractions while on the road, but also because it doesn't perfectly reproduce human vision. As for the law, whether the behavior shown in these videos is illegal could vary state by state. It's still a bit of a gray area. Deba Motasham, NPR News. This is NPR.
Whether it's a song that autoplays on Spotify or a video recommended on YouTube or TikTok, algorithms dominate the online lives of a lot of, a lot of people. NPR's Bobby Allen takes a look at a nascent protest movement. Tyler Bainbridge is a former meta-engineer who lives in Brooklyn. To escape ever-present algorithms, he launched his own social media site. It's called PI.FYI. The PI stands for Perfectly Imperfect. You're prompted to answer questions like, what did you read last week? And a small group of friends chime in. There are no algorithms or popularity contests. Bainbridge says the site is a protest against what he calls algorithmic culture. My mom can go on the app and recommend Shepherd's Pie. And it doesn't feel out of place next to uh, a downtown New Yorker talking about a, a new band that they like. Bainbridge isn't alone. More and more experts say people are turning to personalized newsletters and websites run directly by artists and musicians. And an old thing is becoming new. Asking, say, a bookstore or a record store clerk for a recommendation instead of a machine. Bobby Allen, NPR News. An attorney for Britain's Prince Harry says his client has reached an out-of-court settlement with Mirror Group newspapers. David Sherborne said today that the tabloid newspaper publisher has agreed to pay substantial costs and damages to settle a case over phone hacking and invasion of privacy. But the Duke of Sussex has said he will continue his mission to hold British media accountable, which he has accused of harassing his wife Meghan and his late mother, Princess Diana. The Dow has closed down 54 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Political leaders in South Boston are organizing a community meeting after learning the state is considering a temporary shelter for migrant families in the Fort Point neighborhood. Congressman Stephen Lynch, state and city officials, say they want to know just how the office building owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association will be used. City Councilor Aaron Murphy questions how the office building could become an overnight shelter. Making sure that we're properly installing the right amount of bathrooms and showers and that it's safe for any residents or surrounding businesses, neighbors in the area. Councillor Murphy says South Boston neighbors are also upset they haven't been consulted. The state just opened a shelter at the Milnia Cass Recreational Center in Roxbury. A New Hampshire man was among five Marines killed in a helicopter crash in the mountains near San Diego during a storm. The Marine Corps today confirmed 26-year-old Captain Jack Casey of Dover, New Hampshire, was one of the victims. The helicopter crashed Tuesday night during a flight. The military says it'll take weeks to recover their remains because of the rough terrain and weather. School officials in Mansfield are investigating after someone was heard shouting a racial slur at a high school basketball game last night. Superintendent Teresa Murphy says she became aware of the incident this morning when a social media video began to circulate. She says there is no place for hateful language in the school or the school community. And the MBTA's commuter rail has drawn up a new map to highlight black-owned businesses and Black History Month events near its train stops. Keolis operates the commuter rail for the MBTA. Director of Marketing Lizzie Doherty says the project is about connecting communities. It's gotten a lot of positive feedback, so that's been exciting to see that it is being used as a resource and people are hoping to get out and celebrate Black history and do it with public transportation. Riders can find the map on the T's commuter rail Instagram. Doherty is encouraging the public to come up with more suggestions to make the map a collaboration with communities. 47 degrees in the Boston area overnight tonight should fall to about 37 and then tomorrow could reach up to about 50 degrees coming close to 60 degrees on Saturday and then Sunday 
bringing in some sunshine, gusty winds, cooler temperatures, still warmer than usual, 50 degrees tops. By the way, tomorrow we should have lots of clouds around during the day. Again, 47 in Boston at 409. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It was a bruising week for Republican leaders in Washington. In the House, Speaker Mike Johnson led his party to failures on two high-profile measures, the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and a foreign aid bill for Israel. And in the Senate, Republicans' chaotic response to a bipartisan border deal fueled frustration with minority leader Mitch McConnell. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is here in the studio to talk about it. Hi, Sue. Hey, Ari. Let's start with the House. Why can't Speaker Johnson move his own party's legislative agenda? Look, Speaker Johnson has a couple more votes, but he doesn't really have a governing Republican majority. He's either had to rely on Democrats to get must-pass bills through, and when it comes to these strictly partisan things like impeachment, he needs near-total unity. Just three Republican lawmakers tanked impeachment this week, and Johnson was asked about his leadership failures, and this was his response. Democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor-thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. So, you know, points for candor, but admitting you don't know where the votes are going to be on any given time isn't exactly a reassuring message to the rank and file. Right. Where is the criticism of Johnson coming from and what does it look like? You know, some of it is buyer's remorse. Uh, Thomas Massey's a Republican from Kentucky, said this week that throwing out former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was a, quote, unmitigated disaster. Some of it's from hard right conservatives who are mad that Johnson, like McCarthy, has relied on Democrats to pass legislation. One of them, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, has already said she could bring a motion to vacate Johnson from the speakership if he keeps relying on Democrats to do something like pass a Ukraine aid bill. Side note here, Ari, there is zero chance a Ukraine aid bill can get through the House without Democrats. So there's a lot of pressure still to come on Johnson. And some of it's just from more mainstream conservatives who are just embarrassed by the state of things. One of them is Garrett Graves of Louisiana. There's a lot that, that needs to be done in terms of, you know, kind of riding the ship and, and I think re-instilling re confidence uh, back in the American people that, that we can govern. So there's a ton of finger pointing among Republicans for who's to blame, but ultimately it rests to the speaker to sort of resolve all of this. He hasn't proven able to do it, but he still has the support of former President Trump, which carries a lot of weight with these members. And on the Senate side of Congress, things don't look too much more organized. Uh, Republicans rejected the very border compromise deal that they said was necessary to win their votes in the first place. What's the dynamic like there? The political timing here is just terrible for Republicans. They're being asked to vote for a bill that Donald Trump doesn't like, that their base doesn't like. And all of this is happening just as their own primary elections are starting to ramp up. It's just not a good political place for any Republican to be in right now, even if the policy underneath it all is something most of them actually support. 
McConnell's sort of past rock-solid ability to keep his party together at tough moments hasn't really come through here. It's been true on the border, and I think it's been acutely true about Ukraine aid. He has spent months trying to rally support within his party for this aid package, and he hasn't been able to move the needle. And the Senate is going to try to finally resolve this in the coming days. Are senators questioning McConnell's leadership in the same way that in the House they're questioning Johnson's? Yes, but it's mostly the same voices that have been questioning it since the 2022 midterms when Republicans didn't win a majority. Remember, 10 Republican senators voted against him as leader back then. One of them, Ted Cruz of Texas this week, said point blank he thought it was time for new leadership. McConnell sort of shrugged that off and said everyone knows Ted Cruz isn't a fan. Another one of those senators is Josh Hawley from Missouri, and he was asked this week about how he feels about leadership. And just take a listen to him. You can hear the disdain and sarcasm in his voice. Oh, I think Republican leadership has shown they're a well-oiled machine. I mean, they just, they just do great. I mean, it couldn't be improved upon. Absolutely have it all together, you know, very, very impressive. He just keeps going. Yeah. Ouch. You know, so no, there is no immediate threat to Mitch McConnell's leadership position, but obviously there's a lot at stake in the 2024 elections, not just for the party, but this question of whether he's still going to lead them. Publicly, he says he's going to serve out his term through 2026, but Republicans won't elect their leadership until after the election. Keep in mind, though, he and his outside allies are on track to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to help Republicans win a Senate majority this November. That's political correspondent Susan Davis. Thanks, Sue. You're welcome. There seems to be nowhere to run for Palestinians in Gaza right now. This week, Israeli airstrikes killed 13 people in the southern city of Rafah. That's where Israel had previously told Gazans they would be safe. The strikes are part of Israel's continuing retaliation for the October 7th Hamas attack. Untold thousands of Gazans are trying to survive in Rafah now. The border with Egypt is closed, and Egypt has warned Israel not to let the conflict spill over into its territory. Hisham Mahana is in Rafah. He's a spokesperson with the International Committee of the Red Cross. When we spoke earlier, I asked him about day-to-day life now for people in Rafah. Well, living in a tent, it's cold with winter and mud. Get inside these tents, there's no access to uh, healthcare service. Uh, there are children who were recently born, and they live in these conditions now with their families, and the majority of them cannot afford to, to get them powder milk, diapers because they are either unavailable or because they are extremely expensive. And uh, this is the perfect environment for shredding of diseases like flu, influenza, chickenpox, hepatitis A. Uh, There's even thousands of people who are entitled to receive medical care on a regular basis, like trying to use patients, cancer patients, pregnant women, persons with disabilities, and they have been disconnected from the healthcare system for months. And some of them are more vulnerable than ever when they are forced to live in, in, in such conditions. Adding to that, the fear, the anxiety, people are scared because they have been already so much and they have no idea where they go to if, uh, you know, unfortunately things become uh, uh, worse in Russia. And to emphasize something you said, these are people who have, in many cases, or in some cases, moved multiple times already. They've been displaced repeatedly. Yes, exactly. The majority of them have uh, have left uh, from either the north, the middle area, or the Khan Yunus governorate, and they have nowhere to go back to, and there is no destination. There is no clear destination for them in the future, so they're kind of stuck. What do people in Rafa need the most now in terms of supplies? Well, not only in Rafah, people across the Gaza Strip need, first and foremost, to feel safe. They need a rest from the fighting. 
And everything is needed. They need access to food. They need access to uh, proper housing. They cannot live in tents or makeshift tents forever. They need access to clean water. They need access to fuel because they need to cook a meal. They need to warm up you know, the place where they are living. They need medication. Uh, the vast majority of people with high blood pressure or diabetes they have issues with securing, you know, getting getting access to the medicine, despite of that it's like other organizations are trying to provide that, but access to healthcare service in general, it's it's super challenging. What are the refuge options, if any, for these Gazans who've already had to move multiple times and seek of safety? Is there is there anywhere they could or should go now if they can't stay where they are? Inside Gaza Strip? No, simply. Because if they have to move from one government to another, that would be super risky. Many people had to, to evacuate areas under fire. Humanitarian workers have come under fire while delivering humanitarian aid, including the ICRC. And I was on one of these convoys trying to deliver humanitarian aid, mainly medicine, to hospitals in the north. And we, we, we came under fire. One of the truck drivers was injured. Uh, and we were lucky enough to lose anyone at that time. Is the best hope for Gazans now that Egypt opens its border and they, that country will take them in? Look, I think it's more important to focus on ensuring the security and safety for those who wish to stay, who do not want to leave, who cannot leave. And um, talking about opening the borders for those to leave, I don't think that's even uh, optional for those who wish to leave. It's not an easy decision. Hisham Mahana is in Rafa with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. The most exclusive, hardest-to-obtain accessory this year won't have diamonds or pearls, but rather iron from the actual Eiffel Tower. And to get one will be an Olympic feat, literally. The organizers of the 2024 Games in Paris have announced that this year's Olympic medals will be made with bits of that iconic French structure embedded inside the gold, silver, and bronze. Parisian jewelry house Chaumet shaped the medals into hexagons that'll be hung from the necks of Olympic winners this summer. The president of the organizing committee for the Paris Olympics, Tony Estanguet, explained why pieces of the country's most enduring symbol are being incorporated into the medals. To get a medal, it's so very important. And to have the Eiffel Tower present in the middle, it's uh, for us the best demonstration that uh, we want to, to offer the best of France uh, to all the athletes. Head of design Joachim Ronson says they weren't sure if this idea was possible until the people who maintain the tower showed them a secret stash of archived metal. Each time the Eiffel Tower is refurbished or gets old like any monument, they collect some pieces and they stock them. Then we were able to get our hands on this warehouse and uh, the whole thing started. The pieces they chose to be inlaid in the Olympic medals are from the Eiffel Tower's original construction in the 1880s. Ronson says reaction from athletes to the announcement has been a reward of its own. I felt so much emotion in their voice and it brought me tears because of course, at the end, it's only for them that we're doing that. The games will be held in Paris from July 26th to August 11th.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today on Wall Street, the Dow lost more than a tenth of a percent. S&P hit a record high today. It closed above the 5,000 mark for the first time ever, rising more than a half percent to finish the day at 5,027. NASDAQ rose one and a quarter percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Liz Linder Photography. Creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com. We've got a tribute to Seiji Ozawa coming up in just a few minutes on WBUR, but right now we are taking one minute and 15 seconds to uh, get to our own business and give you a way to help WBUR while also making somebody else really happy. I'm Lisa Mullins with Jay Clayton. Yeah, we can't send you one of those Olympic medals, you know, with the made from the Eiffel Tower. What we can send, though, for Valentine's Day, beautiful Winston flowers. You can check them out at our website, wvur.org. We have this partnership every year, and this is a way for us to raise essential funding for all the programs that you listen to here on WBUR and all the other ways that you depend on us. And you get to send something beautiful to anyone that you'd like nearly anywhere in New England. Check out the choices. You can see them all and choose the perfect gift for your special someone at wbur.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-909-9287. And if you do that by midnight tonight, Lisa, you will save 10%. Save 10% on a dozen long stem red roses, um, two dozen long stem red roses, the ultimate romance arrangement, which is gorgeous with raspberry colored roses, hydrangea, ranunculus, the flower of the month subscription, and um, pretty much go online and you'll see how gorgeous they are. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. At Symphony Hall in Boston this afternoon, a tribute to the late maestro Seiji Ozawa. The BSO's tribute came during today's matinee performance, hours after it was announced that Ozawa died in Tokyo at the age of 88. He was music director of the BSO longer than any other, nearly 30 years. WBR's Andrea Shea remembers Ozawa as a unique figure in Boston, inside Symphony Hall and out. When Seiji Ozawa arrived to lead the BSO in 1973, he was different from the get-go. Longtime classical critic Ellen Pfeiffer remembers how the sprightly 38-year-old conductor liked to wear a tunic at the podium, not a tux. He had a moppish head of hair, and hanging around his neck 
love beads. <laughs> he was very much a product of that era. Ozawa stood out in other ways, too. His appointment was one of her first assignments. I was asked to call some of the Boston Symphony subscribers at that time and ask them what they thought about a Japanese conductor being appointed music director. This was, at the time, quite exotic. Ozawa's predecessors were older and had names like Leinsdorf, Steinberg, Munch, Kusevitsky. Pfeiffer says choosing a 30-something Asian was a bold move for the BSO. They went out on a limb. Ozawa's rise paved the way for other Asian musicians to break into a genre dominated for centuries by white men. This cultural sea change wasn't lost on the maestro either, as he told NPR in 2002. Since I'm kind of pioneer, I must do my best before I die. So people younger than me think, oh, that is possible. I think possible. I hope it's possible. In Japan, Seiji Ozawa's father was a country dentist who, as the story goes, pulled a piano 25 miles in a wagon so his son would have an instrument to play. But as a teenager, Ozawa sprained a finger playing rugby and turned to conducting. In the 50s, he won an international competition, which caught the attention of then-BSO music director Charles Munch. Later, Leonard Bernstein took notice and gave Ozawa a job at the New York Philharmonic. After stints in Japan, Toronto, and San Francisco, he won the position of music director for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and there he stayed for 29 years. As a conductor, Ozawa exhibited a few interesting quirks. He could be heard grunting at the podium. He could lead massive symphonies from memory. He didn't use a baton. And he moved on stage. What a dancer he was. That's BSO trombonist Norman Bolter. He played just feet away from Ozawa from 1975 to 2002, nearly the entire duration of Ozawa's tenure with the orchestra. But not only just a dancer getting up there and doing his own jig. His clarity in conducting was extraordinary, but it just wasn't this persnickety, trying-to-be-clean detailed. It had a fluidity. It had a ballet aspect to it. And it was alive. Ozawa hired Bolter when Bolter was only 20 years old, and for that, Bolter says he will always be grateful. His feelings for Ozawa are personal. He'll never forget their conversations and the maestro's intensity. His eyes could penetrate right through you. You could feel him assessing you. But Ozawa was also fun. In 1988, he led the all-animal orchestra on Sesame Street. Ozawa's grasp on certain real composers was profound, according to Bolter. Seiji did Bartok, in my mind, like nobody did. I mean, he just had this unbridled fervor that would go over him with Bartok and certain other pieces.
He let the orchestra play. He wasn't a control freak in that way. But in other ways, it appears he was. Ozawa courted controversies during his time at the BSO, perhaps most notably in the 90s at the Tanglewood Music Center in the Berkshires. A string of controversial hires and fires enraged longtime BSO administrators and musicians, leading to resignations, bad press, and a precipitous drop in morale. His legacy of handling personnel issues, I don't think, was always um, ideal. Even so, critic Ellen Pfeiffer says Ozawa changed the face of the orchestra and was something of a musical ambassador. He took the BSO to China, making it the first U.S. cultural organization to do so after relations with the country were normalized. And that's Seiji. He has the responsibility for that. Seiji Ozawa left the BSO in 2002 to lead the Vienna State Opera, but fans could still see the maestro in Boston, not at the podium, but at Fenway Park, egging on his favorite baseball team. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Maestro Seiji Ozawa died this week at the age of 88. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is responding to a year-long special counsel report that cleared President Biden of any possible criminal wrongdoing in connection with classified documents he held on to after leaving office. But White House counsel spokesman Ian Sams pushed back against the report's finding that Biden willfully retained and shared the information. The president takes classified information seriously. He always has. He did not intentionally take classified documents. He understands documents like that belong with the government. He never, never made any attempt to obstruct. He says the findings from the special counsel report go back as far as 40 years when Biden was a senator and later vice president. He calls the report's jabs at Biden's memory inappropriate and gratuitous. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is vying for retiring Democratic Senator Ben Cardin's seat in the state Senate. But as Scott Mascioni of member station WYPR tells us, Maryland hasn't had a Republican senator in 37 years. Just hours before the deadline to file papers to run for office, Republican Larry Hogan threw his hat into the ring for Maryland's next senator. Hogan announced his candidacy in a YouTube video. We desperately need leaders willing to stand up to both parties 
Leaders that appreciate that no one of us has all the answers or all the power. Hogan served eight years as Maryland's governor and left office in 2023. He's billed himself as a moderate Republican who's an alternative to former President Donald Trump's style of conservatism. Logan remained popular throughout his governorship and poses a considerable threat to what was assumed a safely Democratic seat. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. Well, stocks finished mostly higher on Wall Street, actually mixed, marking a couple of milestones, particularly in the S&P. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the government to ban insurance companies from using artificial intelligence in Medicare Advantage plans. During a Senate hearing, Warren said investigators revealed that the companies are using AI algorithms to deny care to patients. According to the to the investigation from the inspector general, some seniors, uh, these AI denials led to, quote, amputations, fast spreading cancers and other devastating diagnoses. Senator Warren says rules need to be in place so the AI companies are using uh, are using comply with Medicare guidelines. The Federal Trade Commission reports today it received just over 39,000 fraud reports last year from Massachusetts consumers. The commission says fraud costs people and businesses in the state more than $142 million. The median loss was about $500. In addition, people in the state reported more than 24,000 instances of identity theft to the FTC last year. New England Patriots owner Bob Kraft is paying for a 30-second ad that will play during the Super Bowl on Sunday. It's part of a campaign to fight anti-Semitism. Kraft tells CNN he's worried misinformation about Israel's war with Hamas is fueling more hostility against the Jewish community. I think social media are putting messaging out there that's just improper, so we have to correct it. Kraft says the ad's theme is that hate thrives in silence and no one can be a bystander. The Kraft Foundation to Combat Antisemitism has been funding a Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. And the state's Department of Conservation and Recreation will be closing its ice rinks in Boston early this Sunday. The rinks will shut down at 4 o'clock so employees can get home to watch the Super Bowl. The rinks will reopen Monday at noontime. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead as Conductor Laureate February 23rd and 25th at Symphony Hall. Visit handelandhaydn.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the low to mid 30s. Cloudy tomorrow. Chance of showers should be well into the 50s. Sunny and cooler on Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. A man who's come to symbolize the whiplash fortunes of Pakistan's civilian leaders has announced that he started talks to form a coalition government. But his rival has announced victory through an AI-generated persona. 
To explain this ultra-high-tech development, we called NPR's Dia Hadid. She covers Pakistan from her base in Mumbai. Hi, Dia. Hi, Sasha. What exactly happened today? <laughs> so this evening, Pakistan time, uh, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif announced he deputized his brother, who's also a former Prime Minister, to start talks with smaller parties to try form a coalition government. Inshallah, Roshniya. Roshniya, phir lautenge, Inshallah. Sharif is delighted. He tells a crowd of thousands, I love you. I can see the light and the sparkle in your eyes. So that sounds like a victory speech, but uh, a rival of his also declared victory on behalf of his party. Is that what happened? That's right. And the confusion is largely because these elections were marred by controversy from the get-go. The internet was cut off. There were allegations of fraud and vote rigging, including surrounding Nawaz Sharif's own victory. Um, United States, UK, EU, they've all voiced their concerns. And arguably, Pakistan's most popular leader, Imran Khan, was was not allowed to run. He's another former prime minister, keep count. Analysts say he was ousted from power when he fell out with the country's powerful military. Now he's serving multiple jail terms. His party was also banned from running. So his allies contested as independents, and they've collectively won more seats than Nawaz Sharif's party so far. Deep breath, Khan has a loyal base. They were energized by an AI-generated version of Khan created by his social media team who urged them to go and vote. And that AI-generated Imran Khan persona also announced victory on behalf of his party. I and then that AI bot goes on to say, give a prayer of thanks, because despite all the repression, we won. Analysts tell me the military is unlikely to allow Khan or his allies to govern. So this likely, excuse me, this likely sets up the country for more instability. This is a nuclear armed country. For years, it's been lurching from crisis to crisis. It's battered by climate change, militancy, and even hunger. So, Dia, it sounds like for now you're saying that the next prime minister is likely to be the other guy, Nawaz Sharif. Tell us more about him. Right. So the story of Nawaz Sharif is really the story of the push and pull between civilians and the army over who controls Pakistan. And it's never really that clean cut. You see, Sharif first rose to power with the help of a military dictator. He's been prime minister three times before, but he's had this long, fiery relationship with the army. He's been ousted from power twice, once in a military coup over two decades ago, and he fled into exile. Five years ago, he was ousted from power. Analysts say at the military's behest. He was jailed on corruption charges and then managed to flee to London. But analysts say it appears that he cut a deal with the military and was able to return uh, to Pakistan late last year. And now he's the favoured son again. Analysts don't think this will last, nor do Khan's allies. One of them tells me they're already preparing for the next elections, and maybe then Khan's own fortunes might change, and that's what they hope for anyway. That's NPR's Dia Hadid updating us on the drama unfolding in Pakistan. Dia, thank you for this. You're welcome, Sasha. Where do we go from here? That's the question many are asking after a wild week in Washington. A bipartisan bill on immigration legislation could have been a major shift in U.S. border policy, but it fizzled almost immediately in a divided Senate. Joining us to discuss what is next is NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst. Hi there. Hi. Does the end of this bill mean nothing will change on immigration? 
Yes and no. Uh, I definitely think there's a sense that on the legislative side, nothing can change. Not with this level of political polarization. But the flow of people trying to reach the southern border, that continues. People coming from Latin America, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, that's not stopping just because Congress did. And why does this keep happening? Well, look, the UN has said that last year there was a record rise in displaced people around the world. That's obvious at the border. I've met folks fleeing from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, escaping repression in Turkey, government persecution in Venezuela, and a lot of people who are simply leaving collapsed economies. There also is a lot of misinformation. I constantly talk to migrants on the border who have been told that once they get to the U.S., they're going to be allowed to stay legally, permanently, if they ask for asylum. But getting asylum in the U.S. is difficult. It can be expensive. And there's a massive backlog. Only about half the cases that reached a decision last year got granted asylum. The bill that died in the Senate, a lot of it was focused on border enforcement. So with that gone, what's enforcement going to look like going forward? The Biden administration has ramped up deportations. Also, the Mexican National Guard is increasingly stopping migrants coming north to the U.S. But this issue also extends way beyond the border. Migrants have been sent all over the country. Absolutely. I mean, New York City alone has received around over 170,000 migrants in the last two years, and city government says it can't afford it. Now, while cities like Chicago, New York, and Denver are struggling to manage that influx, you have parts of the Rust Belt, like Erie and Pittsburgh, for example, where there's a pretty severe labor shortage, and some politicians and business leaders are wondering Where is the immigrant labor? So last week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell went on CBS's 60 Minutes, and he talked about labor and immigration. I will say over time, though, the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration. And and frankly, just in the last year, a big part of the story of the labor market coming back into better balance is immigration returning to levels that were more typical of the pre-pandemic era. So the border bill that died this week, one thing that got missed in all the drama surrounding it was that it would have expedited work permits for asylum seekers, something which a lot of cities and business leaders have been asking for. Well, if there's not likely to be any more action in Congress, what is next? Well, again, there's Texas. Texas is still in a standoff with the federal government about who gets to enforce immigration law at the border and how. Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently said that he is going to keep busing migrants to cities like New York and Chicago. The Biden administration has said it needs Congress to pass legislation in order to ramp up border enforcement. NPR's Jasmine Garst, thank you. Thanks.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. We are going to be telling you about a barber in South Boston, why he suddenly has so many more customers, coming up in just about three minutes. First, we just want to remind you of something that many of you wait for every year, and Jay Clayton has the answer to your question, which is, when can I get flowers from my loved one for Valentine's Day? Well, you can do it right now, and it's a, actually a great time to do it because you'll save 10%. You'll support WBUR and all of the stories, the storytelling that you rely on from us every day. All of that comes your way from listener support, and it's why many, many thousands of listeners over the years have put this combination together, sending Winston flowers to a Valentine and at the same time using the money they would spend on those flowers to get them here. And that way it becomes some of the essential funding for this journalism. And you can do that right now and you'll save 10% if you do this before midnight tonight. But again, that deadline, that discount is right upon you. So take advantage of it right now by going to WBUR.org. You can see all four choices there. Again, that's WBUR.org. And you can also call this number, 1-800-909-9287. Very good idea to do it right now because you save 10% on roses for your Valentine, and that is a dozen long-stem red roses. Contribution today is 135 It becomes 150 after today. Uh, two dozen long-stem red roses, 225 today, 20, 250 after today. And then there's the ultimate rose arrangement, which is in front of us right now. It is fantastic. And the flower of the month subscription. The flowers of this month are roses, pink and red, and they are gorgeous. You can find the prizes when you go to WBUR.org and when you talk to the volunteer at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And not only are you sending something really beautiful to somebody who you like or love, uh, including yourself, by the way, but also you're supporting this station, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yeah, this is an essential fundraiser for us, and we are so grateful to everybody who chooses to send the Winston Flowers through WBUR and at the same time use your money to help us bring you all the journalism that you and this community relies on. It is such a critical time for all of us to have reliable journalism. We provide that, but we can only do what we're able to fund with listener support. So it makes a big difference. It matters to us, and we really appreciate it. And I just want to say, too, Lisa, the dozen roses also here next to us. Mm-hmm. The box that yeah. these roses come in is... I saw is, you just checking them out. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. more than three feet long. <laughs> that gives you a sense of what you're in store for when we say long stem roses. These are not ordinary roses. These are extraordinary. They are the kind of roses you or anybody that you send them to will remember for many years to come. And of course, the impact on the journalism too, because you'll be getting them from WBUR and supporting this this organization. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. Website is WBUR.org. Choose the perfect gift there and save 10% as long as you do it before midnight tonight. And we really appreciate your support. Thank you.
WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com, and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Young Si Chu is fascinated by foxes. It is a wily, tricky animal, and one thing that struck me is that you're only a trickster if you don't have much power. And in her new novel, The Fox Wife, a fox shapeshifts to hunt for her daughter's killer. That conversation and the week's news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here, tomorrow. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. For people who are queer, trans, or non-binary, getting a haircut can be a challenge. They say they often feel uncomfortable and have a difficult time getting a barber to understand what they're looking for. But a barber in Boston's South End is reaching out to them on social media. The barber's drawing attention and clients with videos of customers receiving what are being called gender-affirming haircuts. Here's WBR's Amy Sokolow, who paid a visit. Are we doing a bit skin fade? Are we doing what we usually do? Yes. Get this out of your eyes. I'm going to texturize it. M. Arita is cutting Aaron Cho's hair at Barbershop Deluxe. Cho is trans. He moved to the Boston area a year ago and was looking for a queer-friendly barber. I don't really want to put myself in environments where I feel like it's a bunch of, like, dudes talking about sports and girls, and that's just not the type of environment I want to go into. He came across Arita on Instagram. I found them, and I was like, oh, this person looks cool. Over the past three years, Arita has posted hundreds of Instagram videos. Most of them feature clients sitting in Arita's barber chair. Arita asks detailed questions about their vision for their haircut, their hair history, and their gender identity. Many clients have a complex relationship with their hair, like this one featured in a recent clip. I still get pegged a lot as a woman, and I don't really feel like I am a woman. I just feel like I'm myself. And I lean more towards masculinity in yep. like my clothing style and like how I present myself. So I feel like getting a shorter haircut would make me feel even more comfortable. Arita, who's non-binary, got into the industry to help ease some of that tension. They first thought about cutting hair about 15 years ago. I would go to barbershops, and it was fine. I never had like a bad experience there, but I was like, they're not like really my people exactly, you know? So they envisioned a different environment. Wouldn't it be dope if there was like a barbershop, but it was all queer people? Or there were like queer people in there cutting hair, or like queer people hanging out? Because I loved like the kind of the vibe of the barbershop, everybody like shooting the breeze. Arita enrolled in barber school in 2017 and landed at Barbershop Deluxe shortly after graduating. They say, as far as they know, they were the first barber in the Boston area to cater specifically to the queer community. That includes masculine presenting men, non-binary people, queer women, all gender identities. Arita's social media videos began gaining traction last spring when they started working with a marketing coach. Some have gotten more than a million views. Arita often struggles to understand why these videos get so much attention, positive or negative. Sometimes it trips me up when people <laughs> send me like hate DMs and I'm like, I'm just over here making my, my like dumb little haircut videos. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, why are you getting so mad? Queer people need to get their haircut and they shouldn't have to feel like uncomfortable. Arita is careful to protect client safety. They never tag or otherwise identify clients in posts. 
social media followers have labeled Arita's haircuts as gender-affirming, although Arita thinks that applies to all haircuts. I just don't think that a lot of cis people like think about it that way because they don't really have to. But, you know, people feel good after a haircut. Everybody does. And I think it's because they feel like more affirmed in their appearance. And gender presentation is part of your appearance. But Arita says for people struggling with their gender identity, hair is a powerful tool to figure it out. Getting a haircut, like you don't need to go like see a doctor, you don't need a prescription, you don't need insurance. Like it's a thing that if you're struggling with your appearance, and this goes for anybody, it's something that you can do to help yourself. That's how Aaron Cho kickstarted his own gender transition as a teen. He bought a pair of clippers in high school, but wasn't ready to drastically change his hairstyle until college. He cut his hair short in the privacy of his dorm room. Now, almost a decade later, he sits in Arita's chair and runs his fingers through his newly styled do. What do you think? I think it looks great. Feels good, too. Cho will be back in a month for a mid-skin fade and a trim to get the hair out of his eyes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Former President Donald Trump rails against what he calls an invasion at the southern border. At the same time, he's courting Latino voters. In the battleground state of Nevada, Latinos are 20 percent of the electorate. Democrats have long relied on those votes, but Republicans sense an opportunity. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports from the Latino neighborhoods of East Las Vegas. Shuffling through some jeans on a clothing rack in her small store, Cristi Rosales says sales have improved since COVID but not to where they were before the pandemic. It's a major consideration for the 40-year-old native of Colombia who plans to vote in the presidential election this November. I like Trump. I support Trump. I like his way of leadership, of leading the country. She understands it's not the most popular view here in East Las Vegas, where it's almost as common to hear Spanish as English. But as a mom and a small business owner, she says the economy is her top issue. For example, you can speak to many of the store owners here, those who have been here two or three years, and they will say their numbers this year have dropped. She's not alone in worrying about the economy. Just around the corner at a bar in this same Latin market, Kilsen Hidalgo is having a beer after work and singing along to Spanish ballads. I think we need Trump back. We didn't have any problems. We didn't have job problems, you know what I'm saying? The economy was good. While most Latinos in Nevada are Democrats, there has been a notable shift. Jesus Marquez, a local political consultant who has advised several state Republicans, says Trump's focus on working-class Americans resonates here. And it happens that Latinos, we are a big part of that working class. He points to polling that shows the cost of living, the economy, jobs, and health care being the most important issues to the community. In fact, um, immigration falls down into like the seventh or sixth place. It's, it's around there. Republican frontrunner former President Donald Trump is certainly watching those numbers. When you look at the poll numbers, how well we're doing with Hispanics and African-Americans, nobody's ever seen anything like it. They're a little concerned, the Democrats. Jeremy Hughes, a Republican strategist, says Trump made major gains in 2020. Now most of the local data shows Latino voters are more open than ever to supporting Republicans. The message is simple. 
Were you better off four years ago than you are now? And that's why the economy is the number one issue with folks. But anyone who thinks this is going to be a walk in the park for Republicans is sadly mistaken. Just look at 2022 when state Republicans tried to capitalize on those same trends. They had a big win with now Governor Joe Lombardo, but in the same election, they came up short when they targeted Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. But there is always more interest in a presidential election. Luis Manuel Gama Mujica helps manage a taco restaurant with his daughter. He sees more and more Latinos here in Nevada considering Trump. And he says he's not concerned by Trump's fiery rhetoric about migrants arriving at the border. Those are only words that he tells people. What he says is most important are his actions. And in Gama Mujica's opinion, they're results. And like Rosales and Hidalgo, he's thinking a lot about the economy. The economy's most important. It moves business and creates opportunities. And that is what he says has the most direct and immediate impact on his family, and therefore his vote. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Las Vegas. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Still to come on WBUR in about 15 minutes, the Environmental Protection Agency unveils stricter air quality standards. These stories and much more still to come. Taking just about two minutes out right now, just to remind you, this is the time of year when you can do two great things. One is give to WBUR and at the same time, Give some gorgeous flowers to somebody you care about around Valentine's Day. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or call, uh, uh, go to WBUR.org. And when you do, you can see the varieties that we have for you, and you will be looking at images of what Jay Clayton and I are looking at right now, some gorgeous rose arrangements, and um, they could be going to you or somebody you love. These are flowers that make a couple of statements, really. One is the flowers themselves. They're just really stunning. We encourage you to take a look at WBUR.org. You'll know when you see the flowers there why literally tens of thousands of listeners have chosen this way of supporting WBUR throughout the years because your Valentine is going to get just beautiful, memorable flowers from Winston Flowers. Your support is going to provide some of the essential funding for the essential journalism that we bring to strengthen our community here here in Boston and beyond Boston. So you're doing so many good things. And on top of that, if you place your order by midnight tonight, you're going to save 10% as well. So get in on this right now before you get on to the other things in your evening and you miss your chance, you forget about that deadline. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Jay Clayton, just a couple of questions. You can get these delivered on or before Valentine's Day? That is correct, on Tuesday or Wednesday. And Valentine's Day is Wednesday. Right. Okay, so if you order right now, um, you can still put off the delivery until then. Yeah, you can. We we will deliver them on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, You know, Wednesday, the traditional day, of course, but a lot of people like to get them delivered on Tuesday for, you know, a little little extra effect. You can enjoy them even longer. And these, by the way, do last a very long time because they're extraordinarily fresh. Um, And uh, you can get them throughout New England or what's the... That's right. Just about anywhere in New England that you want them to go, we will get them there. Okay. 
sounds like you're a good worker for Winston Flowers. Thank I, you. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. These are gorgeous flowers, and we hope that you'll take advantage of this time when we do it. So many people do. Thousands of people do every year. Order Winston Flowers and, of course, support WBUR at the same time. We hope you'll take advantage of this time on a Friday afternoon to do it right now. Mark it off your calendar for the weekend and for Valentine's Day, too. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From imaginable futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere, at uma.com NPR. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The White House is seeking to discredit parts of the Justice Department report on President Biden's handling of classified documents that described him as an elderly man with poor memory. As NPR's Asma Khalid reports, Vice President Kamala Harris described the comments as politically motivated. Harris said as a former prosecutor, she found the comments made by this prosecutor, quote, inaccurate and inappropriate. The vice president also pointed out Biden sat down for an in-person interview with the special counsel's office just a day after Hamas attacked Israel as he was dealing with an international crisis. So the way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated. This comes as the White House seeks to downplay concerns about the president's age that have been magnified by the report. Asma Khalid, NPR News. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is in the U.S. for bilateral talks with President Biden. The meeting at the White House covered several international issues, including the state of continued U.S. support for Ukraine against Russia's almost two-year war there. Biden reiterated his administration's support for sustained help for Ukraine. I want to thank you all for your leadership from the very beginning. And you've done something no one thought could get done. You've doubled Germany's military aid to Ukraine this year, and it's really important. you got to step up and do our part now. There's been vocal House Republican opposition to additional U.S. military support for Ukraine, and Schultz said he hopes Congress ultimately will approve more aid. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's ordered the military to prepare what he's calling a dual plan for the town at the southern end of the Gaza Strip, both evacuating the civilian population and launching a ground invasion against Hamas. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. Prime Minister Netanyahu is warning that Israel could soon send ground troops into Rafah, the town on Gaza's southern border with Egypt. 
Israeli troops have advanced from north to south in Gaza, and Rafah is the last Hamas stronghold. However, the Biden administration and aid groups are warning this could lead to a huge loss of life because well over one million Palestinian civilians are squeezed into tent camps in and around the town. Netanyahu didn't say where the displaced Palestinians might go. With the Egyptian border closed, the only route that appears possible at present would be to head north back to the devastated Gaza towns they came from. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 today closed above 5,000 for the first time in the history of the S&P, gaining 28 points to close at 5,026. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is remembering Seiji Ozawa. This afternoon, the BSO played a musical tribute to honor its former music director. Ozawa led the orchestra from 1973 to 2002. He died this week at his home in Japan at the age of 88. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin has a temporary new title. He's serving as acting governor because Governor Moore Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll are both out of state. Galvin's expected to act as governor through the weekend. And the iconic L Street Tavern in South Boston is getting a new owner. The bar was made famous in the 1997 movie Goodwill Hunting. According to the bar's social media site, it will be sold next month and remain open under new ownership. In the forecast after a beautiful day, we should have a mixed bag for the weekend. Tonight, cloudy skies, lows in the mid-30s. Most of the clouds should stick around tomorrow. Chance of showers. It'll be warm tomorrow, well into the 50s. Sunday, a mix of clouds and sunshine, a little bit cooler, about 50 degrees for a high. 45 degrees now in Boston at 5.05. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. More news coming up in just two minutes on WB. Well, first, something that's very important to us um, and important to you if you're giving anybody flowers or want to give anybody flowers for Valentine's Day. We're here just to remind you that this is the time of year we have a great offering for you. You can get uh, any one of an uh, array, four different um, bouquets of flowers from Winston Flowers and support WBUR at the same time. Two great things to do. You can do it in the next two minutes. Call now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Hello, Jay Clayton. Hello, Lisa Mullins. And you'll want to do it in the next couple of minutes because we also have some special savings that run only through midnight. The flowers will be here longer, but the discount will not. It's a 10% savings. So you get to make the most of your money in a lot of different ways. A, you'll save some of it, and B, the way you'll spend it will not only get a beautiful gift of flowers for anyone that you'd like to send these to nearly anywhere in New England for Valentine's Day, and then you'll also be with that money providing some of the essential funding for All Things Considered and all the other programs that you listen to on WBUR and all the ways that you connect with WBUR beyond listening. And that's just the way we work these days, and it takes a lot of listeners and listener dollars to make it possible. So it really does matter to us if you're going to send flowers, if you're thinking about it. We hope you will consider sending them from WBUR. 
WBUR and our partners at Winston. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. 1-800-909-9287. And of course, you can also choose the perfect gift at our website. It's WBUR.org. And you can look on the website and see what we're seeing in front of us right now. Some gorgeous gifts. Uh, a dozen red roses, as Jay said, they're, they're um, uh, as long as like three feet or something. I mean, you'll need a wonderful special vase for this, we have to say. Um, and we have the flower of the month with <clears throat> beautiful pink and red roses. And then there's a gorgeous array in front of us with raspberry-colored roses and, and uh, hydrangea and um, ranunculus and some beautiful greenery in it. It's really high quality, and you come to expect high quality news from WBUR. High quality flowers at Valentine's Day from Winston Flowers, a great combination. You're supporting WBUR, which we hope you will when you order the flowers. 1 800 909 9287, WBUR.org. Thank you so much. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden got a legal win and a political setback this week. A Justice Department special counsel found that while Biden may have mishandled classified documents after he left the vice presidency, he should not be charged. The report also took aim at a core vulnerability for Biden, his age. There's been a lot of fallout in the last day since the report came out, and NPR's Domenico Montanaro is here to bring us up to speed. Hey there. Hey. How bad is this for Biden? Well, I mean, it's not good for him because it plays into a bigger existing narrative about his age and fitness for office. You know, polling shows age is a bigger issue for Biden than for former President Trump, even though they're pretty close in age. An NBC uh, poll out this week found that three quarters of Americans have concerns about Biden's age and ability to do the job, as opposed to just half who said the same about Trump, despite, again, the fact that Trump also makes these kinds of missteps and he's also only four years younger. You know, he said that he confused Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi, mixed up President Obama with President Biden multiple times, confused Sioux City, Iowa for Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But because Biden's age is a bigger factor in people's minds, it plays into this broader narrative about whether he's up for the job. Fundamentally, though, I mean, I have to say, I don't think this really changes a whole lot about this election. I think the frame is still which ways out here, concerns about Biden's age or this very strong dislike for Trump, which is very real that we've seen and helped Biden get elected in the first place. Well, what's the White House said in the last day to try to help counter this? Well, Biden's lawyers call the insinuations of memory loss, quote, gratuitous and inappropriate. They say that those descriptions don't belong in a report report that ultimately cleared Biden of charges. You know, they have also emphasized that Biden fully cooperated with the investigation. Here was White House spokesman Ian Sams today. I think the public is smart and I think that they can see what's going on. I think that they see a president who fully cooperated. I think they see a president who did the right thing and made sure everything got back. And I think that they see that this was a long investigation that ended without a case to be made. Yeah. And in addition to Sam's, Vice President Kamala Harris was out there today. Uh, She's also a former prosecutor. She was asked about this at the White House and blasted the language in the report, too. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. 
So she defended the Biden that she sees behind the scenes. But a lot of this was really cleanup after Biden himself held a press conference last night and he wound up stepping on his message, playing into the very thing that he was trying to refute these questions about his age when he mixed up Mexico and Egypt, for example. You know, that distracted from the message that he was trying to get across, his anger about this prosecutor mentioning his son, Bo, and trying to get into the substance of what's happening with Israel and Gaza and how he believes Israel's response has been, quote, over the top. Put this into context for us, because as you mentioned, Trump is nearly as old as Biden, has also confused people's names and and was actually criminally charged with mishandling classified documents. So how do the two situations compare? Why do you think this has stuck to Biden so much more than it has to Trump? I don't know that it's stuck more to Biden than it has to Trump. I mean, certainly today uh, we're talking about this, but, you know, half the country certainly or more uh, has a very negative opinion of Trump and even higher than for Biden. It's just that, um, you know, you have Democrats who are willing to also talk about this um, as a potential problem for Biden because you have Democrats, too, who are saying that they think his age is an issue when it comes to what Trump did versus what Biden did, though, as even the special counsel, Robert Hur said, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite, which is unlike what Biden did. Bottom line here is Trump probably wouldn't have been charged either had he just given the stuff back. And Pierre's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. The federal government is cracking down on cities with chronically bad air. This week, the Environmental Protection Agency unveiled new, stricter air quality standards. One target is Salt Lake City, which has long struggled with pollution. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Salt Lake already has topography working against it. You've got steep mountain ranges on either side, creating this giant bowl where dreaded winter inversions trap cold air that stagnates with dust, factory smoke, and diesel exhaust from the city's expanding web of freeways. At least a million people have moved to this valley since 2000, and the air can sometimes look and even be dirtier than Mexico City. And this makes Dr. Tom Nelson cringe. You'll feel it in your, in your throat, in your lungs. You'll feel it stinging your eyes. You can't avoid it. Lately, people worry dust storms off the drying Great Salt Lake are making the air dirtier. From Nelson's hillside home, he's trying to locate the giant lake in the smog-cloaked skyline. Underneath that layer of haze and, and muck, it's just down below, sort of to the, to the north. Well, Nelson grew up here. Today, he manages the ER at one of Utah's largest hospitals. And on bad air days, they see admissions go up for respiratory illnesses and even heart attacks. And yes, it's been an issue forever, but with a booming population and industry and exhaust, we're making a known problem much, much worse. There's mounting pressure to fix this problem, especially with Salt Lake City poised to again host the Winter Olympics, and as more out-of-state transplants move here unaware of the notorious winter pollution. Glade Sowards is with the Utah Division of Air Quality. And it's totally understandable, right? You look out your window and you see that, and, and what I can say is that there is just quite a lot uh, that's going on. Sourd says regulators are scrambling to show how they'll finally come into compliance with federal standards for fine particulate matter and ozone pollution. If they don't, the state could lose federal highway money. The good news is, you know, through our monitoring, we've, we're showing uh, market progress in particulates, and we're hoping to see the same thing with ozone, but we're, there's still some challenges there. 
Sowert's team is also finalizing a voluntary emissions reduction plan that includes things like electric vehicle incentives and energy retrofits. The money would come from President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Well, this is the West, where states have complicated, if contradictory, relationships with federal money. Even as Utah is vying for those IRA funds here at the state capitol, the legislature just passed a new law that aims to give state agencies the power to ignore federal rules on things like air pollution should lawmakers find them overreaching. Republican State Senator Scott Sandel sponsored what's being called the Sovereignty Bill. Right now the balance is all coming down on a bureaucrat or bureaucracy saying we know what's good for your health and we're not going to take into account what's good for your economy at all. But we're going we're gonna to come in and we're going to be your health doctor. Utah recently lost a legal battle with the Biden administration over a rule regulating pollution from coal plants that blows into other states. Republican Governor Spencer Cox says in Utah it's possible to balance a healthy environment with the economy. Pollution is not getting worse, by the way. The pollution is getting better. Our air is cleaner now than it's been in 50 years. That's true, but Utah has still been in and out of compliance with federal air pollution standards since 2006. A lot of people that move here think, wow, you know, the air is is terrible. And, and it does during inversion. It will always be this way. The, the Native Americans called it the Valley of Smoke during inversion season. But Cox's own environmental agency warned in a report late last year that climate change and toxic dust off the drying Great Salt Lake could reverse recent air pollution gains. Now, all of this is personal for Dr. Tom Nelson. Dada. Yeah. Yeah. All Thank you. On really bad air days, his four-year-old son sometimes has to be hospitalized due to pre-existing health problems. As you look out to that valley right now and you see how disgusting that is, this is not an exceptional day. This is becoming more and more frequent. Nelson says it's gotten to the point where his family is considering leaving their hometown. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Salt Lake City. Seiji Ozawa, the conductor who led the Boston Symphony Orchestra for nearly three decades, has died of heart failure at age 88. Andrea Shea of member station WBUR remembers a celebrated and controversial musician. When Seiji Ozawa arrived to lead the BSO in 1973, he was different from the get-go. Longtime classical critic Ellen Pfeiffer remembers how the 38-year-old conductor often wore a tunic at the podium not a tux. He had a moppish head of hair and hanging around his neck. Love beads. <laughs> he was very much a product of that era. Ozawa's predecessors were older and had names like Leinsdorf, Steinberg, Munch, Kusevitsky. Pfeiffer says choosing a 30-something Asian was a bold move for the BSO. They went out on a limb. Ozawa's rise paved the way for other Asians to break into a genre dominated for centuries by white men. This cultural sea change wasn't lost on the maestro either, as he told NPR in 2002. Since I'm kind of pioneer, I must do my best before I die. So people younger than me think, oh, that is possible. Ozawa could be heard grunting when he led the orchestra. He could conduct massive symphonies from memory. He didn't use a baton, and he moved behind the podium. Ozawa was also fun. In 1988, he led the All Animal Orchestra on Sesame Street. 
Ozawa's grasp of certain real composers was profound, says trombonist Norman Bolter. Stagey did Bartok, in my mind, like nobody did. He let the orchestra play. He wasn't a control freak in that way. But in other ways, it appears he was. A string of controversial personnel decisions enraged longtime BSO administrators and musicians in the mid-1990s, leading to resignations, bad press, and a precipitous drop in morale. Even so, critic Ellen Pfeiffer says Ozawa changed the face of the orchestra and was something of a musical ambassador. He took the BSO to China, making it the first U.S. cultural organization to do so after relations with the country were normalized. Seiji Ozawa left the BSO in 2002 to lead the Vienna State Opera, but fans could still see the maestro in Boston, not at the podium, but at Fenway Park egging on his favorite baseball team. For NPR News, I'm Andrea Shea in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science with changing landscapes, an immersive journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe, mos.org. Today on Wall Street, the Dow lost more than a tenth of a percent. S&P hit a record high today. It closed above the 5,000 mark for the first time ever, rising more than a half percent to finish the day at 5,027. And the Nasdaq rose one and a quarter percent. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. And Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. Elon Musk. To some people, he is Tesla. But is that good for a public company? Coming up in about three minutes, we'll hear how a recent court case rejecting his record pay package spotlights the dangers. We are asking you, in the meantime, just to um, make a Valentine of yours extremely happy. Make WBUR extremely happy at the same time by investing in the station and getting some Winston flowers for Valentine's Day. Here's the number, one 800 909 9287 or go to wbur.org. I'm Lisa Mullins for just about two and a half more minutes with Jay Clayton. I hope you're going to be Lisa Mullins. Yes, longer than that. that. Yes, thank you, Jay. Yeah, let's just leave that there. (laughs) So we have this partnership we've had for quite a while, about 20 some odd years here at WBUR with Winston Flowers. They offer to send your Valentine, anyone you want to uh, send something nice to on Valentine's Day, Beautiful, really stunning, long-stemmed roses, a dozen red roses, two dozen if you'd like, or the ultimate rose arrangement or flowers every single month for a year, beginning with roses on Valentine's Day. Any of those choices, you can check them out at WBUR.org. You can very quickly and easily send one just about anywhere in New England in time for Valentine's Day. And a nice thing about this is that the money you spend is going to become some of the essential funding that we need here at WBUR to bring you the stories that you count on and all the ways that you count on WBUR listening and beyond. It really comes down to listener support. And very honestly, we need more listeners and more listener dollars to be able to fund this journalism. So it means a lot. If you're going to send something this uh, Valentine's Day, we hope you'll consider this offer. We hope you'll do it. 
today while you can save 10% as well. That savings ends tonight, so make the most of what you can do for yourself, for your Valentine, for your station. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. So once again, the discount is just until uh, midnight tonight, and uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of that. The fact is tens of thousands of people, WBUR listeners, have sent their Valentine's flowers from Winston Flowers through WBUR. It is a, certainly a good deal and, and because you're getting the most beautiful, the freshest flowers with the most tasteful arrangements. You can see them online at WBUR.org. And you're helping WBUR at the same time. Who knew sending somebody flowers would help make the journalism that you hear on WBUR? It happens every year. This is It's happening right now just for a couple more days. We're asking you to make the pledge to WBUR by choosing some flowers for somebody that you love or at least like uh, by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And we've got examples of the flowers here. You can check them out at our website and choose the perfect gift for your Valentine. The dozen and two dozen roses come safely. They travel safely to your Valentine in a long box. And when I say long, I mean more than three feet long. These are just stunning long-stemmed red roses. You won't find any like it anywhere else. That is why we partner with Winston Flowers. It's because of who they are and what they provide. And you know what WBUR provides. And this is a way to fund what we bring to you, what you depend on us to bring to you, and send these beautiful flowers anywhere in New England to anyone you'd like for Valentine's Day. But again, the discount of 10% on any of the choices that's only available until midnight. So take advantage of it while you're reminded of it. Just go to WBUR.org and you can choose the perfect gift for your Valentine. Four different choices. You can see them at WBUR.org. They're in front of us right now. Really high quality uh, flowers available to you. And by investing in them, you will be investing in us because we'll be able to tell you the stories that matter to you. Stories that are coming up, including the one in just about 20 seconds. one 800 909 287wbur.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Elon Musk isn't just the CEO of Tesla. He's the techno king. That's a title he gave himself. Love him, hate him, or be baffled by him. To a significant extent, Elon Musk is Tesla. And he's made Tesla shareholders a lot of money. But is his influence also a risk? NPR's Camilla Dominoski takes a look. This question came up when a judge in Delaware's Chancery Court recently threw out Elon Musk's record-breaking paycheck as Tesla CEO. I mean, this is very unusual for a court to completely rescind an award like this. Deb Lifshay is with Pearl Meyer and Partners, which advises boards on how much they should pay CEOs. And this unusual decision was in large part about Elon Musk's 
power. At public companies, ones that trade on stock exchanges, CEOs are not supposed to have total control. A board of directors with independent members on it, they oversee the CEO and set their pay. And courts tend to respect board's decisions. But was Tesla's board making this decision? Or Elon Musk? He's the superstar. He is the face of Tesla. And that's the problem, which sort of segued into the other overarching problem of this entire thing, that his hands were all over his package. That pay package was ultimately worth $55 billion. That's 33 times bigger than the next biggest in history, which was Elon Musk's previous pay package. Now, Musk would only get compensated if Tesla grew a mind-boggling amount. So much it seemed impossible at the time the pay was set, but then he pulled it off. This moonshot pay scheme was Musk's idea, and the board he presented it to with those members who are supposed to be independent of Musk? They were um, friends, they went to each other's weddings, they vacationed together. Now, lots of other companies have CEOs and board members who are cozier than they should be, but none of them have paid their CEO $55 billion. Tesla and its board, as usual, did not respond to NPR's inquiries, but an influential investor did. Kathy Wood, whose big early bet on Tesla propelled her fund, ARK Invest, to fame. Wood emphasizes that this huge payout was tied to that impossible-seeming growth which Musk achieved. He deserves, he lived, ate, and, and, and slept under his desk at Tesla uh, in order to make this happen. As for the board, she says, their ties to Musk weren't a secret, and they believed in him as a leader and technologist. So from that point of view, sure he influenced uh, them, but he had to influence all shareholders, and 73% of us voted for this package. Musk has a lot of influence over Tesla, and he wants even more direct voting control before moving forward with AI and the humanoid robot named Optimus. Wood knows many people think giving Musk more power would be bad corporate governance, but it makes sense to her. He wants to be able to continue to shape the company. And she thinks he should have outsized power to do that. Musk's power over the boardroom already worried the judge in Delaware, the way his superstar status can make directors deferential, create a distortion field that means risks for shareholders. Greg Varello was the lead attorney for the shareholder who sued Tesla, successfully arguing that this pay deal was excessive. I asked if he thinks a superstar CEO being in control is inherently bad. My own view is you have to look at the activities of that controller to determine whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, when they effectively pay themselves $55 billion, perhaps it's not such a good thing. He expects Tesla to appeal this Delaware decision, which means there will be more back and forth over the size of Elon Musk's compensation and the size of his influence. After the court decision, Musk announced he'd move Tesla to Texas, pending a shareholder vote. For Mr. Musk's benefit, you are allowed to move under the law. If you start by having the board of directors determine that might be a good idea and recommend that to the shareholders. A decision by the board of directors. A step, Varello says, that Tesla's techno-king appears to have skipped. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. 
WBUR supporters include Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House announced today that President Biden plans to name a task force to protect classified documents during presidential transitions. This comes after a special counsel report cleared Biden of any wrongdoing, but also raised questions about his memory and indirectly his ability to lead. Vice President Kamala Harris, speaking from the White House today, pushed back on the accusations, calling them politically motivated. He was in front of it all, coordinating and directing leaders who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe. Polls have repeatedly shown many voters are concerned about Biden's age. He's 81, while his likely opponent in the presidential race, Donald Trump, is 77 and also faces questions about his mental sharpness. Well, just ahead of Super Bowl Sunday, when party food takes center stage, a recall is expanding some food items sold nationwide. NPR's Amy Held says it's due to the risk of listeria. Seven-layer dip, enchiladas, cheeses, yogurt, sour cream, and salad dressing all are among recalled products sold at Whole Foods, Costco, Trader Joe's, and elsewhere. The FDA says Cotilla cheese tested positive for listeria last month, spurring an investigation, and Rizzo Lopez Foods of Modesto, California, to recall all of its dairy products. Listeriosis symptoms include gastro upset and can be especially dangerous for pregnant women, infants, and the elderly. The CDC says each year an estimated 1,600 people are sickened by consuming the bacteria and about 260 die. So far in this outbreak, some two dozen hospitalizations have been reported, plus two deaths. The FDA advises checking labels and when in doubt, throw it out. Amy Held, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The charismatic conductor who led the Boston Symphony Orchestra longer than any other music director has died. Seiji Ozawa died in Tokyo this week. He was 88 years old. Ozawa led the BSO for nearly 30 years. In 2001, he told NPR and historian Brian Bell that Bostonians had a special place in his heart. When I walk in Boston, airport or baseball field or football field, they may not know my name, but if they see my face, ah, you Boston Pops. And uh, I like that. People who never came to Symphony Hall or Tanglewood, they still know Pops. You know, this is very unique. This afternoon, the BSO played a tribute to Ozawa at its Friday performance at Symphony Hall. A New Hampshire man was among the five Marines who were killed in a helicopter crash in the mountains near San Diego during a storm. The Marine Corps today confirmed Captain Jack Casey of Dover, New Hampshire, was one of the victims. The helicopter crashed Tuesday during a training flight. The military says it'll take weeks to recover their remains because of rough terrain and weather. Political leaders in South Boston are organizing a community meeting after learning the state is considering a temporary shelter for migrant families in the Fort Point neighborhood. Congressman Stephen Lynch, state and city officials, say they want to know just how the office building owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association will be used. City Councilor Aaron Murphy questions how an office building can be used as an overnight shelter. Making sure that 
we're properly installing the right amount of bathrooms and showers and that it's safe for any residents or surrounding businesses, neighbors in the area. Councillor Murphy says South Boston neighbors are also upset they have not been consulted on the project. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Clouds gather tonight. Temperatures dip to the mid-30s. The weekend's a combo plate. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, but warmish could inch toward 60 degrees. Sunday, sun mixes in with the clouds. Winds pick up. Temperatures dip back to about 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at z And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The pandemic may be over, but its effects are still being felt by K-12 students in the United States. That's the takeaway of two big new studies, one focused on student learning, the other on school attendance. There is some good news, but also clear signs that the pandemic learning recovery is still underway. Corey Turner and Sequoia Carrillo from NPR's Education Desk are going to tell us about those findings. Hi to both of you. Hey, Sasha. Hello. Corey, would you start us off with the good news? You bet. I'm glad I get the good news part. So <laughs> let's start with student learning. From spring 2022 to spring 2023, students made up for about a third of the learning they had missed in math during the pandemic, and they made up for about a quarter of the learning they had missed in reading during the pandemic. That's according to a newly updated Education Recovery Scorecard, which is basically a co-production between Harvard and Stanford, and it covers data from a little more than half of states. One of the researchers involved said that math increase especially was, quote, huge by historical standards. The news was also pretty good when it comes to chronic absenteeism, at least insofar as the national rate went down a little bit. And that's according to research from Nat Malkus at the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute. The percentage of students who missed more than a tenth of the school year, Sasha, so that's around 18 to 20 days at least, it dropped in 2023. It went from 28% of students chronically absent the year before to 26%. All right, so still not great, but considered relatively good news. Sequoia, would you deliver the bad news? Well, Corey kind of just said it. One in four kids is regularly missing school. It may be 26% now, but before the pandemic, we'd been sitting at around 15% for a long time. So sure, it's down, but it's still much higher than it was and should be. And of course, with kids out of classrooms, learning isn't rebounding the way many experts hoped. Only three states have been able to get back to 2019 levels in reading, and Alabama is the only state to do that in math. Every other state in these studies is still working their way back to pre-pandemic levels, and 
in many cases, struggling to do so. And Corey, your reporting found, as is sadly so often the case, that poverty plays a big role here. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to learning, the pandemic really blew up achievement gaps between students in wealthier schools and lower income schools, Sasha. Because even though disadvantaged students are now making some gains, wealthier students are making bigger gains. In fact, the report says, quote, in most states, achievement gaps between rich and poor districts are even wider now than they were before the pandemic. And the trend lines are pretty similar when it comes to chronic absenteeism. So before the pandemic, absenteeism rates were already higher in higher poverty districts than they were in wealthier districts, and they rose more during the pandemic, which is now obviously complicating those schools' learning plans. Because as the researcher Nat Malkus told me, academic recovery is a pipe dream until we fix chronic absenteeism. So in terms of what's ahead, Sequoia, where do we go from here? How do we address this? Well, to address chronic absenteeism, we really have to identify what the problem is, right? Malchus says there's been a shift in how families weigh the importance of going to school every day against everything else going on in their lives. Some parents now seem more inclined to let their students miss school, perhaps not realizing the links between skipping school and negative consequences like lower rates of high school and college completion. And Malchus says it's going to be hard to address with policy from the outside without getting buy-in first from families. This is a culture problem. And, you know, in businesses and in schools and in communities, culture eats policy for breakfast every day. So to fix this, schools really need to get parents involved. Some districts are launching texting and calling initiatives to nudge parents and students back. There are lots of ways to help fix this problem, but they mostly cost money. And the federal funding to help schools bounce back from the pandemic is running out in the fall. That's NPR's Sequoia Carrillo and Corey Turner. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. You're welcome, Sasha. The FTC has reached its first settlement with a location data broker. These are the companies that collect and sell information about people's whereabouts. Our colleagues at The Indicator, Darian Woods and Waylon Wong, have more on the settlement and on how your data is tracked and put up for sale. Lena Gamrawi is a privacy lawyer. A couple of years ago, she helped launch a watchdog group that investigated mobile apps. Apps are collecting information about you. The apps then turn around and sell that information to data brokers, third parties, who then package that data, repurpose it, and then sell it to anyone that wants to buy the data. Lena says location data can be helpful. Like, say an epidemiologist wants to track the spread of infectious diseases in a population. And then there are apps that simply wouldn't work without knowing their users' locations. Think of navigation and mapping apps or ride-sharing apps like Lyft and Uber. Lena says that often the app developers have no idea that this data is being collected in the first place. And that's because of something called software development kits, or SDKs. Basically, they're pieces of code that app developers use when creating an app instead of writing the code from scratch. But unbeknownst to app developers, some SDK creators insert location tracking capabilities into their software and sell that data to brokers. Some developers choose to avoid SDKs altogether for this very reason. Developers like Brian Mueller. I'm the founder of Carrot Weather, this uh, snarky little weather app. I hope you get a horrible sunburn. One thing that Carrot does not do, despite being a weather app, is collect and store precise location data. A few years ago, when Brian started reading about how invisible code could be lurking inside SDKs, he decided to remove them from his app. 
there's so many cases out there where location data can be used to really hurt people. And that's the kind of stuff that I don't want to contribute to. Now government regulators are stepping in. Brian Schull is a senior attorney at the FTC's Division of Privacy and Identity Protection. He worked on the FTC's case, and it involved a data broker called X-Mode. What we're trying to do with this X-Mode case is, is really nail down those locations where it's very clear that consumers are injured when this data is revealed to others. Those locations include medical and reproductive health clinics, houses of worship, and domestic abuse shelters. The FTC alleges that Xmode sold data that could potentially reveal people's visits to those sensitive places. According to the FTC, Xmode got this location data mostly through SDKs. The agency says Xmode didn't always tell app developers or consumers how this information was being used, and that meant consumers couldn't consent to sharing it. The terms of the FTC settlement still need final approval. If it goes through, Xmode will be required to keep a list of sensitive locations and delete those locations from any data that it sells. Xmode was acquired a few years ago, and it's now known as OutLogic. We contacted OutLogic for comment on the FTC settlement, and the company said it disagrees with the FTC. It also said that following the FTC's new policy won't significantly change the way it does business. Meanwhile, the FTC is undeterred. The agency took similar action against a second company and banned it from selling location data. Darian Woods. Waylon Wong. And PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on WBUR, there's a big surge in Mexican families fleeing cartel violence in Mexico. They don't have refugee status and fear that any U.S. border deal will push them out. That story is ahead in about four minutes on WBUR. We're hoping you'll take that four minutes right now to do something that thousands of BUR listeners just like you do, and that is to Help WBUR's journalism, help make it stronger, and, what do you know, order gorgeous flowers at the same time from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day. 1-800-909-9287. Call that number or see the offerings at WBUR.org and order online. Jay Clayton. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, like, how do you explain this to somebody who has never done this before? And I I, I think I would put it this way, Lisa. If, if, you, if you've never sent Winston Flowers to everybody, anybody you're not familiar with them, I guess I would put it this way. If Winston Flowers were a radio station, it would be WBUR. That's the level of quality mm. that you're getting in these flowers. And conversely, if we were a florist, we'd want to be Winston <laughs> Flowers, right? Because it is all about the quality. It is all about the value that you're getting, knowing that, hey, you might spend some money to send something nice, to do something nice for somebody in the days up to Valentine's Day anyway. This way, you can do a really beautiful thing for somebody, a really memorable thing, and at the same time, with your money, support WBUR and help us bring you more of the journalism that we all need in this world that we're navigating through together. So give us a call at 1-800-909-9287, one 800 
909-9287. Or you can take a look at the four choices and choose yours at WBUR.org. And if you do that before midnight tonight, you will save 10% on whichever arrangement you choose. And we hope that you will take advantage of that. Also know that when you make an order, you can have the flowers delivered well before Valentine's Day, if you like. And my guess is that they will stay fresh and look gorgeous long after Valentine's Day because these are really beautiful fresh flowers, high-quality flowers from Winston Flowers. And by the way, you might think that Winston Flowers, given how much you hear about them and see of them in Boston, are some big conglomerate in Los Angeles. They're not. They're family-owned. They started in 1944 with a focus on excellence, and they have kept that focus. That's why we're doing business with them. And we hope that when you order flowers for Valentine's Day, You'll order Winston Flowers Winston Flowers through WBUR because we are happy to partner with them. We're happy to provide you a gift for a loved one. And because, frankly, journalism needs to stay strong. This is a really difficult time for all journalistic endeavors. You read that. You know that. WBUR is included in that. So if you can swing a donation through Giving Flowers, we hope you'll do that right now. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. We really appreciate your making the match of the flowers and WBUR support at the same time. Yeah, and you're going to save 10% if you make that choice and take care of that before midnight tonight. The flowers will still be here over the weekend and then days early next week leading up to Valentine's Day. However, the discount does end this evening at midnight. So take advantage of it right now before you get into your weekend. It'll take you just two or three minutes to place your order to choose a perfect gift for your Valentine. Take a look at the choices, wbur.org. Or if it's easier, you want to give a call, you have some questions, 1-800-909-9287. And don't forget, you can also leave a message for uh, a loved one, something with the flowers that goes with the flowers, Um, some of them that we've had in the past. My support for public radio is second only to my support of you. It's not quite so romantic, but I guess, you know. It does the trick. It does the trick. Um, I hope it's not news to you, but my love is true. All our leisure trips by car listening to WBUR are happy memories. I like that one. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. With a border deal failing in Congress, there's little to stop people from continuing to enter the U.S. from Mexico. And lately, there's been a shift in who is trying to cross and why. The number of Mexican people entering as family groups has grown by nearly four times since 2022. It was more than 230,000 last year. Arizona Public Media's Danielle Camara reports from a migrant help center in Mexico. It's breakfast time at the Kino Border Initiative in Nogales, and dozens of migrant families are here. Kids run around as volunteers spoon heaps of huevitos and frijoles with warm tortillas onto people's plates. A soft-spoken 27-year-old named Rosa is here with her son, who's nine. We're only using Rosa's first name because she fled threats on her life and is afraid she could be found. Near the noisy kitchen, Rosa says in November they fled their little town in the southern Mexican state of Guerrero, about 1,500 miles south of here. 
pues también estaba exponiendo mucho a mi niño y pues decidí salir. Ahora sí que como she says her life was in danger and her child was at risk, so she decided to leave. She no longer had an alternative. Most migrants this center helps now come from southern Mexico, says spokesperson Pedro de Velasco. Many, he says, have small children. If we only consider Guerrero, you know, as a country, it would be the top one country. A lot of people are fleeing Guerrero, and they tell us about this total impunity. The cartels are pretty much running towns. In the past, De Velasco says most migrants told them they were coming to the U.S. for economic reasons. Now, more than 83% say they're fleeing violence. In 2022, the Biden administration opened pathways for tens of thousands of Venezuelans, also fleeing violence and economic upheaval, offering them humanitarian parole. Last year, that was expanded to include people from Haiti, Cuba, and Nicaragua. But there's nothing like that specific to this new wave of Mexican families crossing into the U.S. now. Rosa, who wants to enter legally, says her only hope now is to use the CBP-1 app, which allows a limited number of people to apply for humanitarian parole. She gets on the app every morning, trying to secure an appointment for herself and her son. She's had no luck so far. La verdad, no. Es más como que desesperante porque es amanecer y... She says it's a desperate situation to wake up with the hope of getting an appointment and realizing you're not going to, and you're going to have to try again. It's unlikely that people like Rosa will have an easier time getting asylum anytime soon. The bipartisan border deal that just died in the Senate called for reducing the number of migrants allowed into the U.S. and quickly returning them to their home countries. Rosa continues trying to get an appointment on the CBP app every day, but she doesn't know how long it will take, and after about three months, she's running out of shelters to stay at. Yo sé que a partir de eso hubo muchas cosas más que llegaron a afectarme. Rosa says she left Guerrero with fear, but also courage, to find a place where she could be safe with her son. She says with all she's gone through, she trusts in God it will pass, and she'll find a place to be safe. It's her only hope. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Camara in Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Usher, the chart-topping singer-songwriter, will be this year's halftime performer. It's his first time on stage at the Super Bowl since a guest appearance in 2011. So how will he squeeze 30 years of music into just 13 minutes? NPR Music Editor Sheldon Pierce is here to talk about it. Hey there. Hi, Ari. What's Usher been up to these days? Well, you know... Usher's stock is way up right now. It's sort of interesting. In the late 2010s, he was kind of just hanging around. He had a 2018 collaboration he released with the rap producer Zaytoven that felt pretty low stakes and didn't quite land. And in 2019, he returned to his swiveling chair on The Voice. But post-pandemic, he has seen a bit of a resurgence. Uh, he had a viral moment right here at the Tiny Desk in 2022. <laughs> Just when I thought I said all I can say. 
And he's been doing this residency in Las Vegas that has been really, really successful. And he had another stint in Paris. He just dropped an album ahead of the Super Bowl performance, and it almost feels like it exists primarily to bolster that performance. What's the response to the new album been so far? I think it's been pretty positive. Don't let this turn into a pop. Be a more to your dog. Can get you all my mind. I think about you all the time. Some days I lay in the dark stay in the blind. It's kind of what you would expect from Usher, this supreme display of professionalism and polish. Uh, it explores a lot of the familiar Usher modes, but with great skill, sort of running the gamut as a R&B masterclass. And since much of modern R&B is about vibes and atmosphere, it can be refreshing to hear a seasoned artist be so like craft focused. At the center is the club adjacent pop R&B he has trafficked in throughout the late stages of his career. And with songs like Keep On Dancing, which feels both sort of retro and modern at the same time. Lyrics that speak directly to Usher's ethos of staying out on the dance floor as a metaphor for persevering through a turbulent romance. It all feels deeply connected to everything he's done up to this point. Every Super Bowl performance is a little bit different, contains some surprises. Any guesses of what we should expect from Usher's? Well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Usher at least sort of test the waters for some of this new music, especially with a world tour coming up later this year. But I think his set will lean heavily on sort of the classics of his early discography. I wouldn't expect anything crazily groundbreaking, um, probably more in the realm of dramatic displays of virtuosity. He has a history of sort of connecting with the music of past entertainers. Uh, he's performed with James Brown, with Michael Jackson. At the 2020 Grammys, he did a tribute performance in the role of Prince. So I do expect whatever he does to connect his legacy work with that of Black pop music in general. Well, give us your predictions. What do you think is going to happen on Sunday? Well, you know, I, I can't imagine a world in which he doesn't do yeah. So maybe he brings out Little John and Ludacris <laughs> with him. Maybe there's an Alicia Keys duet in the works. But I really do think it'll play strongly off the Las Vegas residency, which those sets lean into him being sort of this grown and sexy performer, you know, super fit, abs out, gyrating, uh, some level of theatricality, maybe pyrotechnics, backup dancers and the like. But he has also said that he wants to connect with and honor artists in this performance. And the Vegas residency did see him bringing out R&B performers across eras. Keith Sweat, Teddy Riley, Robin Thicke, Faith Evans, and Ashanti even. So perhaps there is something in store that puts his music in conversation with the broader R&B legacy. I think in either case, 
he plans to put the typical glitz and pageantry of Vegas on full display. NPR's Sheldon Pierce, thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday evening. Coming up in about seven minutes, Republicans in Congress are reeling after two of their high-profile measures failed to pass this week. We'll have a closer look at what's going on with the GOP. That story and then business news starts at 6.30. There is so much high-quality journalism that you get on WBUR. We are hoping that right now, in just the next couple of minutes, you'll support it and hoping that you will also order some flowers. Jay Clayton, what's that about? Yeah, the nice thing is you can send a really stunning gift of Winston Flowers anywhere in New England to the person you choose for Valentine's Day. And with that choice, you will also be supporting this journalism here that you get from WBUR. And, you know, you may be going to send a gift off anyway. This way you can do these two amazing things all at once. It'll take you just a couple of minutes. And if you do it before midnight tonight, you will also save 10%. Now, the flowers will still be here tomorrow. The discount, however, will not. So take advantage of that. Take care of it right now while you're reminded of it. Just go over to WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. You can choose the perfect gift there. Or if you'd like, give us a call. The number is 1-800-909-9287. Or go to WBUR.org. This is uh, uh, such a fortuitous time for you to be listening because we want to remind you, as thousands of people do, that you can be one of the people to order some flowers for Valentine's Day and support WBUR at the same time. Thank you so much. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is again calling on Congress to pass a massive national security spending package that would include funding to help Israel and Ukraine in their war efforts. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, he made the case, along with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who was visiting the White House. Biden has been trying for months to get Congress to approve the package, which includes $61 billion for Ukraine. He said the U.S. would be there for Ukraine as long as long as it takes, but pushback from House Republicans has put that commitment in serious doubt. The failure 
the United States Congress, if it occurs, not to support Ukraine is close to criminal neglect. It is outrageous. The Senate could vote as early as next week on an aid package. But even if it does pass, it's not at all clear the House will even bring it up for a vote. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. More than 650,000 residents of Gaza will have no home to return to after Israel's military campaign ends, according to the United Nations. Some researchers and human rights advocates say that amounts to what they call domicide. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. Domicide is a relatively new term that means the widespread or systematic destruction of people's homes. It's usually used in the context of international conflict. The word doesn't appear in the Geneva Conventions, but one UN official wrote a recent opinion piece calling for domicide to be considered a crime against humanity. Israel's military says Hamas embeds fighters and military infrastructure among civilian buildings and in densely populated areas. More than half of all buildings in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed since October 7th, according to an analysis of satellite imagery. Rebuilding will be a massive and expensive task. The UN estimates it'll take four years just to clear the rubble. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. The S&P 500 set another new record and ended the day above 5,000 for the first time ever. The index closed at 5,026. As NPR's David Gura reports, the S&P and the NASDAQ and the Dow Jones Industrial Average all had winning weeks. The broad-based index, which includes 500 of the world's largest and best-known companies, had been flirting with 5,000 for a few days. But it took off after the opening bell, driven higher by a longer and longer string of good economic data and updates from hundreds of publicly traded companies. Many of them did better in the last three months of 2023 than Wall Street expected. But this continues to be a narrow rally. Technology stocks have driven recent gains, which explains why the Nasdaq also ended the day up one and a quarter percent. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which includes just 30 blue chip companies, ended the day down by about 55 points. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Trade Commission reports today that it received just over 39,000 fraud reports last year from Massachusetts consumers. The FTC says that cost people and businesses in the state more than $142 million. In addition, people in the state reported more than 24,000 instances of identity theft to the FTC last year. School officials in Mansfield are investigating after somebody was heard shouting a racial slur during a high school basketball game last night. The incident came to light this morning when a social media video began to circulate. Superintendent Teresa Murphy says there is no place for hateful language in the school or in the school community. And AAA is warning about an expected uptick in vehicle crashes in Massachusetts on Super Bowl Sunday. The Auto Club analyzed state data for the past five years. It found there are 56 percent more crashes that include injury between 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. the night of the big game and the day after. Had a beautiful day today. Should have some fog around tonight. Lots of clouds down to the mid-30s for a low. Tomorrow should be kind of iffy. Gray skies, chance of some showers. Unseasonably warm, though. Could make it to almost 60 degrees tomorrow, then pulling back to about 50 on Sunday with partly sunny skies. 44 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. We're going to be going to the Middle East with many more stories coming up in just a couple of minutes. First, a reminder uh, from me, Lisa Mullins, and from Jay Clayton sitting with me right now that we have some gorgeous flowers in the offing. You can get some flowers for your Valentine and support WBUR at the same time. Jay, what's it all about? Yes, it's it's all about knowing that we are rounding the corner toward Valentine's Day, and we have this arrangement with Winston Flowers every year at this time. Thousands of listeners take part in it, have taken part in it over the years. The idea that you send a nice dozen or two dozen long-stemmed red roses to anybody that you would like to receive them from you for Valentine's Day. We can send them anywhere in New England. And when you do that, that purchase will become a contribution for WBUR to help us fund our journalism, the journalism that you're listening to right now and that you probably depend on just about every day. So it's a good investment. It's a good deal. It's a good value. And best of all, you will save 10% if you place that order right now. That 10% savings only in the offering until midnight. So take advantage of this while you're reminded of it, while you've got this opportunity before it slips away, because it will slip away at midnight. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number. You can call. I'll give you that again. 1-800-909-9287. And of course, WBUR.org. We hope you do that right now because we're going back to the news in just about a minute and a half. Um, this is We talk about the fantastically gorgeous flowers. Jay and I have some of them in front of us right now, including the two dozen red roses, which are like three feet high. And um, and the gorgeous monthly array. This is the monthly uh, month of the gift, uh, month of the year gift that you get with pink and red roses. Beautiful arrangement. Um, but we also have to talk about the journalism because journalism, including here at WBUR, is under tremendous economic pressure at a time when aggressive reporting is what we need, is what you're asking for, and what you've come to expect from WBUR. So this is um, kind of a, um, a double opportunity to support the journalism here at WBUR and to get some beautiful, high-quality flowers for somebody important to you, somebody important in your life. And you can have them delivered on Valentine's Day if you want, or the day before, or I think, Jay Clayton, two days before? Uh, the day before Valentine's Day or on Valentine's Day, so Tuesday or Wednesday. Wednesday. And this is also available throughout New England, right? Yes. Yep. And uh, and so take advantage of it. Go online at WBUR.org and take a look at the four different options that you have. They're really beautiful. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. The website is WBUR.org. The last chance to save 10% is at midnight tonight. So don't miss that opportunity and know that we really appreciate it because we really do need the funding for the journalism that you rely on. Your Valentine, whoever that may be, will really remember this gift from you. Take a look at the flowers. You can choose the perfect gift. It'll take you just a couple of minutes at WBUR.org. Thank you so much. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It was a bruising week for Republican leaders in Washington. In the House, Speaker Mike Johnson led his party to failures on two high-profile measures, the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and a foreign aid bill for Israel. And in the Senate, Republicans' chaotic response to a bipartisan border deal fueled frustration with minority leader Mitch McConnell. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is here in the studio to talk about it. Hi, Sue. Hey, Ari. Let's start with the House. Why can't Speaker Johnson move his own party's legislative agenda? 
Look, Speaker Johnson has a couple more votes, but he doesn't really have a governing Republican majority. He's either had to rely on Democrats to get must-pass bills through, and when it comes to these strictly partisan things like impeachment, he needs near-total unity. Just three Republican lawmakers tanked impeachment this week, and Johnson was asked about his leadership failures, and this was his response. Democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor-thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. So, you know, points for candor, but admitting you don't know where the votes are going to be on any given time isn't exactly a reassuring message to the rank and file. Right. Where is the criticism of Johnson coming from and what does it look like? You know, some of it is buyer's remorse. Uh, Thomas Massey is a Republican from Kentucky, said this week that throwing out former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was a, quote, unmitigated disaster. Some of it's from hard right conservatives who are mad that Johnson, like McCarthy, has relied on Democrats to pass legislation. One of them, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, has already said she could bring a motion to vacate Johnson from the speakership if he keeps relying on Democrats to do something like pass a Ukraine aid bill. Side note here, Ari, there is zero chance a Ukraine aid bill can get through the House without Democrats. So there's a lot of pressure still to come on Johnson. And some of it's just from more mainstream conservatives who are just embarrassed by the state of things. One of them is Garrett Graves of Louisiana. There's a lot that, that needs to be done in terms of, you know, kind of riding the ship and, and I think re-instilling re confidence uh, back in the American people that, that we can govern. So there's a ton of finger pointing among Republicans for who's to blame, but ultimately it rests to the speaker to sort of resolve all of this. He hasn't proven able to do it, but he still has the support of former President Trump, which carries a lot of weight with these members. And on the Senate side of Congress, things don't look too much more organized. Uh, Republicans rejected the very border compromise deal that they said was necessary to win their votes in the first place. What's the dynamic like there? The political timing here is just terrible for Republicans. They're being asked to vote for a bill that Donald Trump doesn't like, that their base doesn't like. And all of this is happening just as their own primary elections are starting to ramp up. It's just not a good political place for any Republican to be in right now, even if the policy underneath it all is something most of them actually support. McConnell's sort of past rock-solid ability to keep his party together at tough moments hasn't really come through here. It's been true on the border, and I think it's been acutely true about Ukraine aid. He has spent months trying to rally support within his party for this aid package, and he hasn't been able to move the needle. And the Senate is going to try to finally resolve this in the coming days. Are senators questioning McConnell's leadership in the same way that in the House they're questioning Johnson's? Yes, but it's mostly the same voices that have been questioning it since the 2022 midterms when Republicans didn't win a majority. Remember, 10 Republican senators voted against him as leader back then. One of them, Ted Cruz of Texas this week, said point blank he thought it was time for new leadership. McConnell sort of shrugged that off and said everyone knows Ted Cruz isn't a fan. Another one of those senators is Josh Hawley from Missouri, and he was asked this week about how he feels about leadership. And just take a listen to him. You can hear the disdain and sarcasm in his voice. Oh, I think Republican leadership has shown they're a well-oiled machine. I mean, they just, they just do great. I mean, it couldn't be improved upon. Absolutely. Have it all together. You know, very, very impressive. He just keeps going. Yeah. Ouch. You know, so no, there is no immediate threat to Mitch McConnell's leadership position, but obviously there's a lot at stake in the 2024 elections, not just for the party, but this question of whether he's still going to lead them. Publicly, he says he's going to serve out his term through 2026, but Republicans won't elect their leadership until after the election. Keep in mind, though, he and his outside allies are on track to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to help Republicans win a Senate majority this November. That's political correspondent Susan Davis. Thanks, Sue. You're welcome.
There seems to be nowhere to run for Palestinians in Gaza right now. This week, Israeli airstrikes killed 13 people in the southern city of Rafah. That's where Israel had previously told Gazans they would be safe. The strikes are part of Israel's continuing retaliation for the October 7th Hamas attack. Untold thousands of Gazans are trying to survive in Rafah now. The border with Egypt is closed, and Egypt has warned Israel not to let the conflict spill over into its territory. Hisham Mahana is in Rafah. He's a spokesperson with the International Committee of the Red Cross. When we spoke earlier, I asked him about day-to-day life now for people in Rafah. Well, living in a tent, it's cold with winter and mud. Get inside these tents, there is no access to uh, healthcare service. Uh, there are children who were recently born, and they live in these conditions now with their families, and the majority of them cannot afford to, to get them powder milk, diapers, because they are either unavailable or because they are extremely expensive. And uh, this is the perfect environment for shredding of diseases like flu, influenza, chickenpox, uh, hepatitis A. Uh, there's even thousands of people who are entitled to receive medical care on a regular basis, like chronic disease patients, cancer patients, pregnant women, persons with disabilities, and they have been disconnected from the healthcare system for months. And some of them are more vulnerable than ever when they are forced to live in, in, in such conditions. Adding to that, the fear, the anxiety, people are scared because they have been already so much and they have no idea where they go to if, uh, you know, unfortunately things become uh, uh, worse in Rafa. And to emphasize something you said, these are people who have, in many cases, or in some cases, moved multiple times already. They've been displaced repeatedly. Yes, exactly. The majority of them have uh, have left uh, from either the north, the middle area, or Khan Yunus governorate, and they have nowhere to go back to. And there is no destination. There is no clear destination for them in the future. So they're kind of stuck. What do people in Rafah need the most now in terms of supplies? Well, not only in Rafah. People across the Gaza Strip need, first and foremost, to feel safe. They need a rest from the fighting. And everything is needed. They need access to food. They need access to uh, proper housing. They cannot live in tents or makeshift tents forever. They need access to clean water. They need access to fuel because they need to cook a meal. They need to warm up, you know, the place where they are living. They need medication. Uh, the vast majority of people with high blood pressure or diabetes, they have issues with securing, you know, getting getting access to the medicine. Despite of that, it's like other organizations are trying to provide that, but access to healthcare service in general, it's, it's super challenging. What are the refuge options, if any, for these Gazans who've already had to move multiple times in seek of safety? Is there, is there anywhere they could or should go now if they can't stay where they are? Inside Gaza Strip? No, simply. Because if they have to move from one government to another, that would be super risky. Many people had to, to evacuate areas under fire. Humanitarian workers have come under fire while delivering humanitarian aid, including the ICRC. And I was on one of these convoys trying to deliver humanitarian aid, mainly medicine, to hospitals in the north. And we we, we came under fire. One of the truck drivers was injured. Uh, And we were lucky enough to lose anyone at that time. 
Is the best hope for Gazans now that Egypt opens its border and they, that country will take them in? Look, I think it's more important to focus on ensuring the security and safety for those who wish to stay, who do not want to leave, who cannot leave. And um, talking about opening the borders for those to leave, I don't think that's even uh, optional for those who wish to leave. It's not an easy decision. Hisham Mahana is in Rafa with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. The most exclusive, hardest-to-obtain accessory this year won't have diamonds or pearls, but rather iron from the actual Eiffel Tower. And to get one will be an Olympic feat, literally. The organizers of the 2024 Games in Paris have announced that this year's Olympic medals will be made with bits of that iconic French structure embedded inside the gold, silver, and bronze. Parisian jewelry house Chaumet shaped the medals into hexagons that'll be hung from the necks of Olympic winners this summer. The president of the organizing committee for the Paris Olympics, Tony Estanguet, explained why pieces of the country's most enduring symbol are being incorporated into the medals. To get a medal, it's so very important. And to have the Eiffel Tower present in the middle, it's uh, for us the best demonstration that uh, we want to, to offer the best of France uh, to all the athletes. Head of design Joachim Ronson says they weren't sure if this idea was possible until the people who maintain the tower showed them a secret stash of archived metal. Each time the Eiffel Tower is refurbished or gets old like any monument, they collect some pieces and they stock them. Then we were able to get our hands on this warehouse and uh, the whole thing uh, started. The pieces they chose to be inlaid in the Olympic medals are from the Eiffel Tower's original construction in the 1880s. Ronson says reaction from athletes to the announcement has been a reward of its own. I felt so much emotions in their voice and it brought me tears because of course, at the end, it's only for them that we're doing that. The games will be held in Paris from July 26th to August 11th. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Today on Wall Street, the Dow lost more than a tenth of a percent. S&P hit a record high today. It closed above the 5,000 mark for the first time ever, rising more than a half percent to finish the day at 5,027. NASDAQ rose one and a quarter percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. More news coming up in just about three minutes. First, I want to remind you that this uh, is uh, the weekend just before Valentine's Day. Wouldn't it be great if you got off your list 
um, the gift that you want to give to somebody important in your life, and if you support a WBUR at the same time, what do you know? We have a way you can do just that. Jay Clayton? Yes, we have a partnership with Winston Flowers. We've been partnering with them for a couple of decades plus. And the reason we do this is because it's just such a great thing. You know, if you're going to send something to somebody for Valentine's Day and you want it to be a statement kind of a thing that you send them and you want to get good value in supporting something you care about, in this case WBUR, you can do this all at once in a matter of two, three minutes at at the most. Just go to WBUR.org, choose the perfect gift. We've got four choices, including a dozen or two dozen long-stemmed red roses, something called the Ultimate rose arrangement which is just really a showstopper when you when you see it and you can again at our website and when we also have lisa flowers every month for a year beginning with roses on valentine's day so lots of different choices you can't go wrong with any of them because you'll be supporting wbur too and if you do this right now you're going to save 10 percent. that's added value there too that savings that 10 percent savings only until midnight tonight so take advantage of it at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And as Jay said, if you were planning on giving somebody you love flowers anyway, we hope you'll do it right now through WBUR with Winston Flowers, the highest quality flowers around, and we can attest to that because we're looking at three different bouquets right in front of us right now. Uh, and and WBUR, the highest news, the highest uh, quality news cast that you get around, the news reporting that you hear on WBUR, is exceptional. So you have a chance to support both things right now, to enjoy both things with um, your order. Make it online at WBUR.org or go to 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And Jay, as you said, you get a discount if you order right now just until midnight tonight. Yes, 10% savings on, again, it's a dozen or two dozen long-stemmed red roses. And when we say long stem red roses the box which is right beside us that these will travel in to get to your valentine the box itself is more than three feet long and that's because it needs to be for these flowers <laughs> right, these because are the flowers are more yeah, than three feet. that's right these are truly long stem red roses so you're getting you know great quality there and really you're going to make a very nice memory for someone special to you and of course you'll be helping us too by supporting wbur with your purchase so go to wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287 save 10 percent, but only until midnight and we really appreciate your support thank you WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. Maplewoodyearround.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Mental health is coming up a lot in politics. This mental health crisis is something we need to face together as a country. We have a moral obligation, in my view. My administration is strongly committed to helping Americans suffering from mental illness. That's President Biden and former President Trump both speaking during their presidencies at events on mental health awareness. Young Americans are particularly vocal about this subject. But how political is the issue of mental health for Gen Z and millennials? NPR's Elena Moore breaks it down. 
When Democrat Joe Vogel was campaigning for Maryland state legislature, there was something he kept hearing from young people. They wanted to elect someone who was going to make student mental health a priority. Vogel won that race, and just a few weeks after entering the legislature, he introduced his first bill, which focused on relieving a portion of student debt for mental health professionals in schools. The policy passed with bipartisan support. Now, Vogel is running for Congress. At 27, if successful, he would become just the second member of Generation Z elected. And part of his platform includes addressing what he calls a mental health crisis facing young people today. The toxicity that we see on social media platforms, the fear of of what the climate crisis is going to hold for our generation. I mean, all of these things, I think, have a unique impact. But on top of that, we're also a generation that is having to deal with this mental health crisis without adequate resources. The latest Harvard Youth poll found that nearly half of young Americans report feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. And more than half said they felt nervous, anxious, or on edge at least several times a week. So to mental health advocates, it's clear that this issue is political. Whether you're talking about immigration, education, healthcare, reproductive rights, veterans, across the board, all of these issues have mental health repercussions and a mental health impact. That's Hannah Wesolowski, the chief advocacy officer at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is nonpartisan. So if a policymaker is not focusing on it, they're missing a big part of the story here. Throughout his first term, President Biden has made mental health a priority, making it part of his unity platform of issues he says are bipartisan. Former President Donald Trump also highlighted the topic during his administration, putting a focus on substance abuse and veteran support. Still, conservative strategist and pollster Sarah Longwell argues mental health is not something young conservatives are bringing up when she talks to them. They still, like, kind of catastrophize about Biden, but they're more cheerful about the world. That said, it is something being addressed by lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. And to Harvard pollster John Della Volpe, who previously worked with the Biden campaign in 2020, conversations with young people about mental health could have a real impact. This is a primary way for elected officials to create some sort of connection with a younger constituent. That rings true for 27-year-old middle school teacher Dakota Duncan in Morganton, North Carolina. When I do hear President Biden or any elected official bring it up, it's a relief and it makes me think more highly of them because I know that they're at least aware that this matters. As someone who sees a counselor for anxiety and depression, Duncan says talking about mental health has always been important to him. And he appreciates when any politician brings it up, mentioning Trump's work on the issue, too. But since becoming a teacher during the pandemic and working in a time of political divisiveness, it's taken on a new meaning for him. I've had students really frankly say to me, how are we supposed to learn if we don't feel safe? at school. The chaos of the world is not lost on Duncan or his students, but he does feel that an issue like mental health can be common ground at home. Elena Moore, NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullen. Seiji Ozawa, the conductor who led the Boston Symphony Orchestra for 29 years, died Tuesday from heart failure. He was 88 years old. This afternoon, the orchestra played a tribute to the late maestro before a scheduled performance. WBR's Amelia Mason was there. 
It's a quiet afternoon in Symphony Hall in Boston as people filter into the soaring auditorium. Joseph Pinocchio, a Redding, already had tickets to the concert, but wasn't aware Seiji Ozawa had died. When I came in and saw his uh, face on the screen, uh, it hit me that he must have passed away. So it's kind of a bittersweet day for me. Pinocchio's been coming to the symphony since the 1970s. He remembers when Ozawa joined the BSO in 1973. I think at the time he was kind of a hip-looking. Uh, he used to wear beads and he, you know, a turtleneck, and uh, he was much different-looking than the traditional conductors that uh, came. And the BSO was a very tradition-oriented orchestra, and to have a music director like Seiji Ozawa was quite a change. In remarks before the performance, BSO president and CEO Chad Smith recalls his first encounter with Ozawa. Like so many people on this stage and on stages around the globe, I first encountered Seiji when I was a student at Tanglewood. And I will never forget the intensity in his eyes as he conducted me and my opera colleagues in a work by Poulenc. During his tenure in Boston, Ozawa boosted the BSO's presence on the international stage. He conducted major orchestras in Europe and continued to conduct in his native Japan. And he's credited with opening the door for other Asian classical music artists. He helped lead one of the most seismic changes in classical music in the last century. And that is the movement of the center of gravity in our art form steadily eastward toward Asia. After Smith's remarks, Karina Kanalakis conducts the Boston Symphony Orchestra in Bach's Air on a G-String. It's the piece Ozawa always chose as a tribute to lost friends. This weekend, the BSO sign above Symphony Hall will be only partially illuminated, leaving just Ozawa's initials, S.O., in honor of the late maestro. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason.